This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from the Melbourne Simeon Network Annual Dinner. The Simeon Network is a national network of Christians in academia. Today's big question, is Australia the ideal home? And we're asking this question today to Natalie Swan. Natalie has just finished a PhD in anthropology at the University of Melbourne, where she researched the interaction between the faith journeys and migration stories of migrant Christians in suburban Melbourne. And she joins me now. Please welcome Natalie Swan. So Natalie, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thanks, Rob. Now, you've just finished writing your PhD. It's been submitted. How was that experience? It was a privilege, um, and I particularly, I think, felt that uh, in my first year, uh, and then I had a baby. Right. Uh, that and slowed things down. That then, slowed it? things down a bit. Uh, I'm very proud to say that it did finish one day, get handed in one day before the four-year full-time equivalent deadline. Right. Um, but I had maxed out every leave allowance the whole system. That was possible. Uh, yeah. That was possible in order to do that with kids. So, so it, was, it was a challenging experience? It was, it was challenging. I think having kids while doing the PhD, particularly in anthropology where you do field work, made some things better. Yeah. I took my little guy along with me in the field and he opened up all sorts of questions uh, and conversations with people that I might not have been able to start uh, and Different perspectives perhaps him. as well. Yeah, and I think people thought of me as a grown-up more right. because I had children. I wasn't just this upstart little 20-something asking them big questions about life, but right, yeah. maybe I'd had some experience had of some that experience, yeah. myself. Um, but it was, but a, yeah, it, was it was a difficult, it was a long journey and a, and a challenging journey. <coughs> it took nine years, yeah. Um, but you're there. But I'm there. <laughs> it's, it's submitted, which is a big sense submitted, of... Submitted, still waiting for the examination results. Right, it's okay. Well, it's anyway, well, we'll talk a bit more about your work in just a moment, but to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today we're asking Natalie Swan if Australia is the ideal home. So Natalie, our smaller questions to you are about songs about home and Australia. Mm -hmm. Now, can you think of many songs which feature Australia and home? At a couple. A couple, right. So, I mean, the most obvious is I still call Australia home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wasn't a song, you didn't have that song humming through your head when you were singing the... You're doing your PhD? No. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, I would much prefer to listen to um, my island home. Ah, right. Okay. Yes. Well, there's two questions, mm. both multiple choice. We'll see how you go with this smaller questions. Okay. Question one. In Peter Allen's famous song, I Still Call Australia Home, he speaks of visiting cities which never close down. So which of these cities is not mentioned in the song? Is it A, New York, B, Rio, C, London, or D, Baghdad. Which of those is not mentioned in the song? Look, I, I know that it, I've been to Rio and Old London Town. Yeah. And I'm going to guess that he doesn't mention Baghdad. No, no, that's, that's the correct answer. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Do you think the meaning of the song would change much, though, if the song's like, if it had cities like Baghdad, Beirut and Old Luanda Town in it, perhaps, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I, our imaginary of what Australia is is linked to Europe and America and the West. Yeah. Uh, and if if it referenced those cities, I think it we'd be a bit confused. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Question two. When originally released in June 1980, where did the song "I Still Call Australia Home" peak in the Australian charts? Was it A. 
number one, a number one smash hit everyone calls Australia home. Was it B, five, a solid top 10 hit lots of people call Australia home? Was it C, 11, it just failed to crack the top 10? Or was it D, 72, perhaps the song didn't quite resonate as much as we thought it might have at the time? So which of those was, where did this song, I still call Australia home, peak in the Australian charts? I genuinely have no idea. I strongly no, I, suspect I, I, I didn't it think didn't you would. go <laughs> to number one. Uh, that would so be you, my, I'm eliminating number one. Yes, that's a good uh, one to eliminate, yeah. 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 Um, and then I'm just going to be a typical student and select letter C because that's kind of the average of the others. Yeah, it's, unfortunately it's D. not. It's actually it's D. D. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's D. It, it, it peaked at number 72. Yeah. Uh, mm. It did re-enter the charts and peak at number 60 in September 2015 following the screening of the miniseries Peter Allen, Not the Boy Next Door. <laughs> um, but in the original, it only reached number 72, which is interesting because it's mm. become sort of an iconic song in Australia. But anyway... Natalie, you hit a home run. You passed. You got one of our two smaller questions right. Big round of applause. <laughs> Big round, yeah, why not? So, Natalie, calling Australia home mm. uh, is part of your research. Uh, though people you spoke to didn't really come from New York, Rio or London or even uh, Rome. Uh, in fact, some did come from Baghdad. So what did you look at? In your research? Yeah, so my research is about the interaction between people's faith journeys and their migration stories. Yep. Um, and I was really interested in the way in which being a Christian transforms the migration experience. Yep. Um, I was interested in the way uh, Christians find home in a new country. When I was studying at university, I was part of a Christian group that really wanted to connect with migrants, but the rhetoric was often about how God was bringing the nations to us. Uh, and I'm also a stati- well, I do a little bit of statistics in my previous life uh, with census data, and I knew that um, over 40% of people who come from the Middle East and North Africa to Australia identify as Christians, um, and almost half of people from Southeast Asia identify as Christians mm. um, already. Uh, so uh, where were they? Uh, what were their stories? How did they find church homes in Australia? And the other thing was uh, my experience of church life is pretty multicultural, mm-hmm. so I wanted to explore what that looked like in a normal Australian setting. So not the big churches or the weird churches, but the kind of everyday suburban experience of being a Christian migrant in mm. Australia. And was that was what you did in your research? You looked at the everyday suburban experience of a, of a Christian migrant coming to Australia? Yeah. So, so, so I worked with three different churches uh, in one suburb in northern Melbourne, um, a Catholic church, a Seventh-day Adventist church and a Protestant Arabic church. And I spent six months worshipping in each of those places uh, and interviewed people wherever they had come from to see how they live in community together. So these, the three churches uh, were all in the same suburb uh, and there were tiny little linkages and overlaps between them, um, but they were largely three independent kind of communities. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you got to immerse yourself in those communities in, su- in yeah. some degree. Yeah. yeah, in a way that... I haven't ever in other local church life before. So what did you discover? What was, was there anything that surprised you in your research? Yeah, um, I think there were personal surprises. I was surprised at how significant Sundays were in making community, um, how quickly I lost connection with my own church community um, by not being there on Sundays, um, how quickly I was adopted into church community um, 
in other they places. They embraced by you worship. in these in these places, even though yeah, you didn't yeah. kind of fit their yep. their sort of background or their expectation. Yeah, and then there were other surprises just at the. Um, the drama of people's lives that's hidden under the surface when you start digging down into people's life experience. Um, so someone presents kind of all together, but then you start getting them down with the microphone and, f- and find out and, their story. And, and you find out, yeah, all sorts of uh, grief and loss and romance and um, things wow. hidden under the surface that you don't find out. So how did you, um, how did you react to that? Uh, when you were a researcher there, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to be just doing research here, but this is obviously a human story that you're trying to connect mm. to. I think as an anthropologist, there is a challenge between wanting to be fully immersed in a community uh, and trying to maintain some objectivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in anthropology, they call it methodological agnosticism, so that sense in which you want to remain open to other communities, other cultures, other ways of life, other faiths. Yeah, but it's... Uh, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> there was one particular moment where uh, a, a woman that I considered my friend was sharing something really just heartbreaking yeah. uh, to her and against my better anthropological instincts, um, it was the one ca- the one time that I kind of said, can I pray for you? And kind of stepped out of the anthropological anthropologist role into the Christian sister kind of role. Yeah. Um, but it was a tricky line to walk, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because um, yeah. you mentioned that your research is in the field of anthropology. Yes, I'm a trained social scientist, not a theologian. Right, yeah. Um, but I do talk about people's Christian lives and I'm a Christian uh, and so that makes that kind of is a big part of the research that I do. Yeah, but hasn't there been an uneasy relationship between anthropology uh, and religion in the past? Yeah, there has. Uh, or uh, religious faith, you know. So how was re- you know, religion viewed amongst the academic anthropology mm. world? Well, there's a long history. Uh, when anthropology started as a discipline, and it's relatively new, um, late 1800s, it actually overlapped with Christianity. Mm-hmm. So lots of... Um, Early missionaries were also anthropologists. Even unbelieving anthropologists used the reports of Christian missionaries to come up with quite sophisticated anthropological theory. But it didn't take long before there was an antagonism between the secular university the, and anthropology and, and matters of faith. Right, yeah. Uh, and for some good reasons, I think there were lots of anthropologists working alongside Christian mission and were troubled by the way in which colonialism was enacted. Well, there were, um, there were Christian missionaries who, who fought back against colonialism as well, but um, there were lots of anthropologists who kind of found that uncomfortable. So they found it uncomfortable, the connection between sort of what they saw as Christianity and a, an, an exploitative sort of ex- expression of that. Yeah, yep. And also people's tendency to adopt Christianity as a way to gain power. Yeah. Uh, so by by becoming Christian, you could align yourself with, with the colonial power. power. So there was a degree of suspicion then in mm. the anthropological world Absolutely. about religious faith. And you step into that to do a PhD. Yeah. So how was that experience? Well, 10 years ago when I started, it was um, what I was doing in terms of bringing together theology and anthropology was quite novel. Uh, the way I was using 
kind of reflections on scripture and things in my work caused one of my supervisors some consternation. But over the course of the kind of very long time that I was doing my PhD, this big conversation opened up between anthropology and theology. Uh, I think, again, the, the Christian circles I was raised in viewed postmodernism with some suspicion. Fe suspicion, fear that it was going to destabilise truth claims. And it kind of did that, but as a result, almost, uh, it meant that matters of faith have to be taken seriously, mm. especially in a, in a field like anthropology. Mm. So they could no longer be kind of brushed aside. They had to be dealt with. And I think also the, the post-colonial kind of impulse to honour the people that we're working with as anthropologists and to take them on their own terms meant that um, we had to take the, the Christian lives of people in the majority world seriously and on mm. their own terms. Mm. So anthropologists were really starting to think seriously about theology and particularly Christian theology. So this there is more than just uh, a way of gaining power or sort of uh, yeah. post-colonial kind of capitalism, yep. etc. This was actually taking this, the faith is actually now viewed more seriously in the academy. Absolutely, yep, yep. And at the same time, there are theologians who are starting to use ethnographic field methods to investigate church life. There was a, a conversation that was just ripe, mm. uh, a whole bunch of theologians who wanted to talk about ethnography and anthropology and anthropologists who were interested in theology, and it's booming. Mm. Mm. And you've walked straight into that in some ways with your PhD. I, I did, <laughs> and it was both a relief and a frustration. Right. Um, what, what, unpack that. Why, why was it a relief and a frustration? Uh, I spent nine years thinking, feeling like I'd missed the boat, <laughs> the publication boat, the novelty boat. But it also meant that by the time I finished, PhD is not really the place to do something creative and uh, boundary pushing. And there was enough other stuff out there that it felt safer for my right. supervisors by the time I got to the fin finish line. Your boundaries weren't yeah. too radical. Yes. Were pushing. Mm. So, well, tell us a bit more about the actual research, what you found. Like, uh, what were the experience of migrants? Were they uh, glad to call Australia home? Yeah. Um, I think by the time I was sitting down interviewing with them, a lot of, uh, all of them expressed gratitude to be here. It wasn't everybody's first choice and lots of people still faced difficulty here. There seems to be a feeling in Australian culture that migrants should be grateful for coming to mm -hmm. Australia. You know, we are almost you know, with a lucky country, you know, it's Absolutely. a ticket to paradise in some sense. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in an editorial in the Herald Sun in 2016, Tom Elliott wrote, recently arrived migrants and their children should feel grateful for the second chance at a decent life that Australia provides. So isn't a good migrant a grateful migrant for being here? I definitely think that we think of it that way in Australian discourse, that, um, that a good migrant is a grateful migrant. Both those kind of right-leaning, more antagonistic things about you'd better be grateful. Yeah. Uh, but also I think um, the left is tempted to draw attention to migrants' gratitude for being here. Mm -hmm. And the opportunities um, that they may get. And the opportunities that they've had here. But I think even harder than the gratitude thing is the sense that the gratitude needs to be happy. So that gratitude and happiness seem to go hand in hand in, in the way we talk about it. Mm. Mm. So do you think that the migrants then um, prefer to be here in Australia or in their home countries? Mm. 
kind of want to reject the premise of the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, they've all come here by choice. Right. So um, there, there is a sense in which that they've all had to leave home. Um, uh, sometimes it's uh, because they're, they're fleeing violence. Um, sometimes that's violence on a national scale. Sometimes that's violence on a personal scale. There are a number of women who left kind of domestic abuse situations. Uh, sometimes it's economic, um, looking for better opportunities for themselves or their children. Um, but they've all chosen to leave their home country and come to Australia. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't mourn what they've lost in leaving, um, leaving a home, uh, another home. Whether that's a home they expect to go back to or not, uh, yeah, it doesn't really seem to matter. Yeah. Uh, but they, yeah. It's so, so they're simultaneously feeling these two things, like mm. sort of grief from what they've left and what they've left mm -hmm. behind. And then almost a sense of joy, but, but it's not quite sort of happiness that yeah. they were thinking here in Australia. So mm. is that a fair way of reading their... Absolutely. ..their feelings? Yeah. Um, so, so what does that sort of what does that mean? Well, I think even though Australia, uh, there are some people in Australia who would like to think that we're a Christian country. I think that holding together gratitude and grief in a kind of complex joy is is a much more Christian way of being than thinking gratitude and happiness have to go together. So I think, and I think Christians practice holding gratitude and grief together in a kind of joyful expression in when we worship, uh, when we um, celebrate festivals like Christmas and Easter. Yeah. That Good Friday is good, even though it's terrible. So that's somewhere as a microcosm of the migrant experiences. They're feeling yep. gratitude or they're feeling the, uh, the grief and the sort of the gratitude at the same time. Yep. And so that would mirror their experience. I think so. Mm. And, I, and I think it's one of the ways in which being a Christian kind of can help with the, the experience of being a migrant. Yeah. And so you found that, that the, the, the experience of being a Christian did actually help them? Look, I didn't um, interview or do any kind of statistical analysis with non-Christians, so I can't make any claims about whether... It was, it was it, better. It, it is better or easier for Christians than non-Christians. Uh, but I certainly feel that the Christians that I spoke to hold on to that as a way of providing meaning and a kind of future hopefulness. Mm, yeah. mm. Well, the Bible does contain a number of images connected to the idea of home. For mm. example, 1 Peter describes the lives of believers in the world as aliens and strangers, sort of foreigners and exiles. So, Natalie, did these ideas resonate with Christian migrants uh, who in some senses are foreigners and strangers in Australia? Mm. I think those words are not, they're not directed to migrants. So when, when he says you're aliens and strangers, yes, he's right. talking to people who are living in their own communities. Yes. But what it means, I think, is that Christians have practice already. If, if, you're, if you're trained at thinking of yourself as an alien or a stranger, you have practice already at living loosely to the place where you live. Mm. You know, you might love your home, your earthly home, but actually your real home is mm. somewhere else. Mm. And you're headed there, and maybe that may, gives you a little bit more freedom Hold things more lightly. Hold, th hold things more lightly. Yeah. Was that the experience that you found of the, of the migrants that you interviewed? I think so. I think so. One of the things that I talk about theoretically is the fact that this kind of Christian practice that we get through things like Christmas and Easter and thinking about 
aliens and strangers and rehearsing those kinds of parts of scripture is that it creates a, a sensibility. So the, the sociologists among you might have would know Bourdieu and his notion of habitus. And so this kind of the Christian practice making is a bit like that. And it, the thing about habitus is that it goes unsaid, that it's the kind of stuff that is so deeply embedded in your way of being that you don't notice anymore. So no, people didn't necessarily articulate it mm. in as many words. I don't, they didn't sit down and say to me, this is like being an alien and a stranger. <laughs> no. But there was a sense in which they sat loosely, sat to, loosely. to either both their first home and their home here in Australia, that um, the Adventists very focused on the second coming of Jesus and, and the home that's going to be mm. theirs when, when he comes back. Mm. Uh, and that is kind of liberating. So this idea of, a, sort of a, something bigger or a bigger story, so to speak, that they could connect to, was that powerful for, for the migrants? Lots of them found Christian community in all the places that they went to. Most of them didn't, or a lot of them didn't come directly to Australia. So they might have um, stopped in Greece on the way or Brunei on the way and, yeah. and before they came to Australia. And there, yes, that sense of being part of a, a much bigger church that in all of these places that they went to uh, and that that's going to be eternal. Mm is definitely something that brings hope mm. and a solidity when there is none. Yeah, and that idea is found in the New Testament book of Philippians, where the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so this heavenly citizenship, this connection to something greater, that, that was mm. an, a, an important factor for these migrants? They could grasp onto that? I think so. Again, nobody said, I am a citizen of heaven. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, but for lots of them, there was that sense of I'm, I'm waiting for my future kind of with Jesus, that yeah. actually that's what keeps you going. And it helps them navigate the grief and, Absolutely. The, and the challenges of the current environment. Absolutely, and separation from family and all of those sorts of things. Mm. Yeah. So that given that these migrants have travelled in different cultures, you've just mentioned mm. that they've been to sometimes many different countries, does that make them, you think, more cosmopolitan, you know, hence open to difference, etc.? It can do, Yeah. Um, for sure. There were particular individuals that I spoke to whose experience of being, in some senses, forced to en engage in Christian communities that were different from the ones that they were raised in because they were the only ones there, kind of stretched their, their Christian practice. So for, for one Catholic woman experiencing Pentecostal Christianity in, in other parts of the world, her prayer life transformed. Mm. Um, she uh, no longer is kind of... She was raised to, to speak prayers in very traditional uh, and kind of planned words. Uh, and when she encountered Pentecostalism, her prayers are now much more fluid. Mm. Um, so she's open to so, more to so she's, yeah. she's open to difference in that way. For in, I can think of another gentleman that I interviewed who was from Tonga, uh, and while he was strongly embedded in the Tongan community, his denominational kind of openness broadened out in Australia. So, again, he was a Catholic gentleman, but he was open to Tongan uniting communities and Tongan Anglican communities and building a kind of a, a cosmopolitan. Tongan community that was interdenominational here in Australia. Mm. Mm. Though couldn't the interplay between this sort of heavenly citizenship or this mm. heavenly hope 
uh, that Paul writes about here in Philippians and the living on earth here, couldn't that lead to sort of a, a, almost a toxic cosmopolitanism that you sort of... Mm dogmatic and you're not actually going to connect, connect to the culture around you. Yeah, yeah. So that's a term that Apia uses to kind of talk about the way in which you can think cosmo, uh, cosmopolitanly. Is that, <laughs> is that, a, is that a word? Cosmopolitanly. Um, well, well, it'll be a word for tonight anyway. About the sense <laughs> in which everybody ought to be kind of connected. Yeah. But everybody needs to be connected in the one way. So whether you're thinking of kind of you know, the McDonaldization of, um, yeah, of places well. or... Yeah. No, actually, that one is... <laughs> so, McDonaldization. Okay, well, there we go. <laughs> Radical Islam, kind of wanting to bring everybody into the same kind of cultural expression. So that's sort of a, a toxic expression of cosmopolitanism. Yeah. Um, I think Christianity, there's a beautiful vision in Revelation where there are tribes from every tongue and every nation gathered under the throne. I can't see that actually cultural difference is eradicated in the new creation. Cultural difference is something that we maybe transcend. Uh, the, the barriers that cultural difference puts between us are broken down. But Christianity needs to be able to allow for varying, the, the, expressions. The varying expressions and the beauty of multiplicity mm. because all cultures, all, all tongues and all nations will be gathered. Mm. That's the biblical vision of this, yeah. citizens, this citizenship in heaven mm-hmm. in some ways that yeah. difference is not eradicated but it's actually in some ways celebrated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now anthropology helps us understand what makes us human. Mm. So how does your research help? I think uh, it helps us understand how, how people make home. So how the habits that you kind of grew up with stay so deeply embedded in you that they become part of the way in which you know how to express love and community, the way in which you find joy and in which you're able to celebrate, such that when migrants come to a new country with a a life of faith, actually preserving some of those habits is key to being able to to live a life of love as a mainstream Australian church if we want to welcome people from overseas I think finding ways to help them love in their habitual ways is going to enrich our lives as a community uh, and help them feel at home mm. and that's connected to the I suppose now the idea that from the even from the academic the academy's perspective that faith is real, mm. that it's actually a valid thing to celebrate and express in a human, uh, yeah. as, as part of being human. I think so. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you so much for sharing today, Natalie. It's been great to hear about your research. So, Natalie. Yes. Is Australia the ideal home? It's a good home. It, it won't be any of our final homes. Uh, and it's not the perfect or ideal home. Uh, but I hope it's one that we strive to see flourish. Mm. And some people have found it a, a place, even though there's grief, they've found it a home. Absolutely. Mm. Let me leave you with the Bible's reflection uh, to this big question, is Australia the ideal home? From Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Natalie Swan. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.